the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome and thanks for once again tuning into another episode of Sake on Air the world's first podcast that is dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. Recorded at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo and made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular hosts here on the show, and I am joined by Rebecca Wilson-Lai and Chris Hughes, along with another actual special guest here, who I will go ahead and introduce in just a moment. But let me get our our our, our mainstays, uh, on, get their voice out here uh, first. Uh, Rebecca, how are you doing this evening? I'm well. I'm surviving the uh, 40-degree heat outside with a nice cool sake, which is um, uh, managing not only to rehydrate me, but also giving me all the um, glucose and umami um, bomb hits that I need to recover from the exhaustive heat. But otherwise, I'm doing well and really looking forward to getting into some really interesting discussions about sake-related questions. Yeah, I'm excited because this this episode is fueled by you, the listeners. So this should be this should be a fun one. This is something we've been wanting to do for a while. Chris Hughes, what's shaking? How you doing, sir? Hey there. Yeah, I'm well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, wonderful to uh, join a, uh, another episode. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to... Uh, attacking these questions that we've received and uh yeah just another shout out for the japanese heat it is a considerably muggy right now i don't have any sake right now but uh that's a really good idea actually i might sort that out you go you go ahead and go uh take care of that take care of yourself there and we'll get we'll get this rolling uh yeah i've actually spent the last month or so up in northern japan pretty much and I just got back a couple of days ago. So I'm, I'm based out in Chiba on the peninsula here. And it's wild because it's the end of August and already I'm, I'm surrounded by rice fields. That makes up a large percentage of the, of the uh, land area uh, around me and around my home. And probably 70% of stuff's already harvested now, you know, which is, you know, it's getting earlier and earlier every year, but it was so bizarre to be up North for a month and, sweltering and the summer heat even even way up north and then coming back and it already looks like autumn here it's bizarre except it's blazing hot and humid so i don't know i'm going through i feel like i'm going in a little bit of like a, a time warp sort of seasonal twilight zone here at the moment but all is well cool and last but certainly not least um we actually have another Guest, I, I, I say guest, but I guess I should say host, member, teammate, uh, crew member. Um, we're we're still we're still working on a a suitable. Uh, what's the what's the word? Katagaki uh, Suitable suitable many. Epithet. Epithet. There you go. There we go. <laughs> this is why I love having you on the show, Rebecca. You're so much more eloquent than I. This is what this is what we need. Um, Cindy Bissig. Cindy, hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Well, I'm in the same heat, right? So <laughs> coping. 
coping, coping, right? That's pretty much where we're all at. And so I really wanted to finally introduce uh, Cindy to our listeners, because believe it or not, you've actually been uh, interacting with Cindy for the past couple of months, believe it or not. And it's because of Cindy that we were actually able to put this episode together as she was the one who was gathering your questions, fielding your questions. And if you have been post, if you have been posting comments or liking or loving or sharing anything from uh, Sake on Air on social media over the past couple months, uh, that has been Cindy. Um, we here at Sake on Air are generally not the most proficient social media uh, team. I'm not going to lie. We probably could be if you know, individually we were able to, to focus and do that, but we're not. And we've wanted to really create more sort of interaction with our listeners for a good period of time now. And we thought, you know, it's finally about time to bring someone on the show who loves sake, enjoys, appreciates sake and the culture around it, who is also much better and more well-equipped at engaging in that space than we are. Um, and that we thought our listeners would enjoy uh, interacting with as well. And as fate would have it over a year and a half of COVID related, you know, quarantines and, and all these things, um, somehow amidst all of that, um, we were able to connect with Cindy. And from just a couple months ago, she has been on board and been doing a beautiful job. Um, yeah, interacting with all of our listeners. So yeah, if you've probably noticed a lot more information going out into the world uh, from Saki on there, us being a bit more proactive in sharing the work uh, of others in and around the Saki industry, um, and as well as being able to field more questions and get those back to us. And it's just been, it's made it so much more fun for us as well, because it's gone from being, uh, I don't want to say a burden, but it's, it, you know, something to have to, <laughs> burden's not the right word. Rebecca, quick, eloquent word. <laughs> <laughs> We've, it's been we've been working um, and creating, but getting feedback actually gives us more motivation and inspiration. I think when we hear back from the market and we hear what you're enjoying or what interests you, it gives us, um, you know, it, I think it really helps us to um, be creative and find new interesting things to discuss. Exactly. I said, and that's exactly, that. that's exactly it. We've been, you know, wanting to create a way so that we can engage better as opposed to just us throwing information out into the void. And Cindy's been doing a beautiful job of helping us make that happen. So I've been blabbing for a while. Cindy, say, say hello, <laughs> say hello again and, and tell everybody a little about yourself. Yeah, so I'm really excited to be here. I mean, I'm excited to do the social media or I've been helping with it for the last couple of months. It's been really interesting. And I mean, I learned a lot. So it's a huge opportunity for me to engage with you guys and with everybody who loves the show because people do love it, right? And I mean, I started my socket journey a couple of years ago and I'm still on it and I'm still learning. So every time I get questions and I pass them on, I learn just as much as any of our listeners do. So yeah, I'm super excited to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the team, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thank you. And so I guess, yeah, with that, um, because of Cindy's uh, time and energy, we have, over the past few weeks, we have been pooling questions from our listener base, uh, trying to figure out what you all want to hear a little bit more about. And so what we're going to do is a, we're just going to read those off. We're going to go down the list. We're going to discuss some of these. 
Um, we might defer some of these. We might go into lightning round on a couple of these. We'll see. We'll kind of see how this plays out as we as we go down the list. But um, even if it doesn't happen tomorrow, you know, the questions and things that we were able to get this time, even if we're not able, able to field all of those questions today, those will be fueling, you know, future show development and program development and things that we're working on down the road. So I, if, yeah. Just one other thing was, I think that the, the questions that Cindy gathered from um, social media also sort of reflects the different levels that well, the different stages that people are in their own sake journey. You know, the people that have just opened the door into the sake world and have really got some of those, you know, um, sake 101 questions to the people that are maybe further over the bridge and have got um, a little bit of knowledge under their belt and are asking more technical questions. Um, so it's really interesting to see that our listeners are just as, just as varied as the very market that we're talking about. Absolutely. And just as varied as sake, I would like to say, and I'll go ahead and that'll, that'll go ahead and just use that as a segue into our first question here, which is um, most of our questions, I believe, were all pooled primarily through Instagram. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, for those that don't mind, I will share your handle as we go through here. So the first question we have here is from Kudzu Hill. And their question is, how varied can sake be? And I guess the second question or second part of that question is, is there new innovation fueling fresh creative sake? Let's, let's maybe break that. Yeah, we need to break down that down. <laughs> into, into a couple of parts, because actually this is a question that we got in different, in different, using different words um, from different people, but essentially asking the same question or a very similar question. We got that from a couple of people. So I guess first and foremost, real quick, how varied is sake, Chris? It's incredibly diverse. It, it's 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 incredibly diverse, but that div that diversity is very subtle. I would say, like if you compare with other beverages, you can have an incredible diversity, but the difference between one sake and another can actually be very very minute in some cases. Um, I I would say that I think. Sake hasn't always been quite this diverse. I think there has been an increase uh, in innovation in recent years, and perhaps we can talk more about that. But that's my answer. It's incredibly diverse. Go out there and discover all that diversity. Yeah, mm, I would agree. And it, it, I mean, I think that you're not when you talk about how varied can sake be. You're not looking at a Scotch whiskey compared to a, a light Chablis. You know, we're not looking at that kind of diversity. But what we are talking, what for me, I mean, the thing for me that really got me hooked on sake was regional diversity. You know, back in 2005, I didn't know anything about sake. I was just learning Japanese. The only way I could learn about sake was drinking it. And I discovered that by traveling around the country, I, I, I started to experience differences in the local flavor profile. And that's been one of the things that I enjoy about sake is that regional diversity. Absolutely, absolutely. The, um, there's so much diversity out there because I think there are so many choices that can, there's one, the regional difference that you're, that you're referencing or the, in, the regional difference, the individual difference. But there's also, there are so many choices that can be made um, when it comes to making a sake. It, to where now we're at the point where it, I feel like it's 
the limitations as to what somebody can make, they're, they're fewer and fewer. And the, the, the range to which, as I say, there are the number of actual limitations are fewer and fewer. And so for a brewer to decide what kind of sake they make, they actually have to sort of impose limitations upon themselves in many cases. And that's what ends up being really interesting. Yeah, what's up, Rebecca? Sake brewers do actually, there is a fundamental limitation is that yeah. sake cannot be anything. There is mm. a, There are regulations to what can be called sake. Mm what can be designated as sake. Mm. If you start adding any ingredients, you are no longer potentially making sake. So there are some actual uh, brewing limitations. Mm. There are some um, tax limitations. There are all sorts of limitations on mm. a brewery on what they can do. So within this very um, structured recipe for what sake is and can mm. be, um, brewers are trying to find ways to maybe create differentiation. Hmm. You also have um, the heritage of the brewery as well. You have this history that they built up with the local people or their, their fans elsewhere around Japan or in the world. Some breweries are so big and have so much heritage that they just can't move. They can't suddenly decide to move the pillars and, and make a more diverse or innovative sake because that would just like, it would be too much of a, you know, they would, I don't know what the word, the correct word is, but not betray exactly, but they would sort of um, go against, you know, the, the preferences that their, their fans have, if you like. So it tends to be, I think, smaller breweries, uh, microbreweries that innovate more. Um, but then again, I will say that I am seeing the opposite trend where some breweries are actually trying to simplify their brewing. They're actually trying to go back to kind of, you know, what is what is sake and and how should it taste and just keeping it really simple um and kind of grounded yeah and that's kind of what i was getting at with the idea of sort of self-imposed limitations and so what i'm gonna i'm gonna jump into the second question because i think this is just a kind of a natural segue and this one comes from uh sake matters thanks sake matters um and this individual or entity says uh, this is more of an observation than a question, but it would be good to have your thoughts on it. Uh, I guess I could summarize by asking, is innovation in sake taking things too far too quickly? My point is that I love and respect the art of sake making and particularly the handcrafted traditional part of that. Nowadays, we're seeing lots of trickery coming into play with crazy yeasts, blends, milling techniques, etc. And I sometimes feel that this is taking away from the simplicity of koji, rice, water, love. I am a traditionalist at heart, and I hope this is something you can use. Thanks. Um, thank you, Sake Matters. Um, and I think that that kind of lead plays right into kind of what you were just talking about, Chris, a little bit. Yeah, I, I my answer to that question is no. I, I think the industry has been incredibly slow, actually, um, in innovating. And the, the industry will admit that. They will admit that they've been very, very slow in innovating. And one reason why Sake popularity peaked in the 70s and then dropped off a cliff is because brewers weren't didn't didn't innovate fast enough really to respond to the change in markets, to change in preferences of of the consumer. Um, it's not a criticism. It's not a criticism. It's just the way it was. It, it's a it's a it, it's an interesting, very unique industry that originated as kind of a way of life, a way of making a living, something that you enjoy doing rather than trying to make a profit and build a business. And things have changed in that respect um, nowadays. Um, 
And I I think innovation is is very, very, very good for the industry. But I, I think there is one caveat. And I think that is it comes down to branding. And I think branding is becoming more and more important because with so much innovation, with so many different styles of sake out there, the consumer will just lose track of, of what, what is, which I think is what Sake Matters is trying to say here, that there's just it's almost too much choice out there. So I think branding will keep things grounded for a lot of breweries. I think what we have to remember as well is that we are living in incredibly fast-paced times. Science, technology, communication is improving, developing at exponential rates. And so therefore, it is only natural, and this is not just the sake industry, that other traditional industries are also going through a more accelerated um, pace of change. But I would bring you back to, there has always been development in sake. And innovation has been a good thing. For example, one trickery that I could draw our attention to would be when uh, Dichi Fatake developed um, an improved way to mill um, a polish sake rice. That led to the expansion, and this was in in Hiroshima, that led to the expansion of Ginjo-style brewing in Hiroshima. Further development of brewing, refrigeration, and transportation led led to the expansion of Honjozo sake, um, Daiginjo sake. Um, So innovation has actually been a way to progress and create longevity for this wonderful traditional industry. And, you know, then if we look in like the last, say, 30 years, for example, just, well, I've been in Japan, I've been in Japan for almost 20 now. Um, Since I've been in Japan, I've witnessed the Maroka Namagenshu trend, which was big in the early um, noughts. Um, Then there was also the... Jinmai Daiginjo trend, which came after Desai, had their success with only brewing Jinmai Daiginjo styles. Um, then, they went, then there was also a particular sort of boom of wacky prefectural yeasts being developed as well around about the same time, where we got things like the Cell, cell 19, Cell 24. Every, brewery, every prefecture seemed to be coming up with a, a wacky regional yeast. Wacky or um, interesting, um, diverse um, yes, and they're doing this just sort of to try and bring attention to themselves, to say, hey, look, Kochi Prefecture is a great prefecture for growing sake too. You know, it was just a way for prefectures to um, create interest. Um, then I also remember there was a big um, uh, renaissance of Yamahai technique, um, and this is probably around about 2006, 2007. Um, and then in 2008, when Senken Brewery relaunched um, the Ama Supai sweet sour um, sake trend was really born. That led into, you know, things like a revisiting of Junmai styles, um, Kimoto, um, Shiro Koji, or, or making the Koji with, um, with uh, the the kojikin that's usually used in shochu brewing. Um, you know, so we've seen a lot of development in the last 10 years, most definitely, but it's it's been, I feel, a natural, a natural organic progression just with the times. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned Yamaha. I think Yamaha is a great example because it's actually not that old. It's something that 
right? A lot of places are revisiting or leaning really heavily on and that a lot of people really like to, that they say, this is something that I enjoy or this is a profile that I like, but it's really only been around about as a hundred years, a little more. And it actually can't, it's, only, it's been around exactly as long as Sokujo. So that speedy method that's making up, you know, 90% plus of all the sake out there that you might say is, you know, less traditional, you know, the Ayamahai method came around about pretty much the exact same time. So it's kind of like, how do you, where do you draw the line between, you know, traditional and innovation and trickery? In a way, Yamaha is an incredible trickery. It's in it, 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 depending on how you spin it, right? It's it's a brilliant trickery of Kimoto, you know, or the Kimoto style, right? Well, um, it's, and so it, the one that you're thinking of is probably the Tengomai style, right? Where they they kind of like they oxidize it as well, so you end up with all these funky, wild aromas and flavors. But the traditional Yamaha is just the same as Kimoto. It's not there's nothing really different in the end product. You know, I've tasted a, a Yamaha and Kimoto side by side. You can't tell them apart. I beg, I beg, I beg to differ, but. But it's but essentially, but essentially it is right. I mean, mm. it's it's relying it's relying on the same principles. So I mean, without going down that rabbit mm. hole, it's just the idea that here's something that, you know, we came up with an easier method to do something we've been doing for a few hundred years, and end result, pretty much the same thing, or at least in a very very similar fear, uh, field and serves a similar function. Rebecca, what's happening? Well, I think we also have to address the elephant in the room: is why are breweries innovating? And I think we need to just sort of be clear that the declining um, domestic consumption of sake, the loss of a traditional customer base in local communities through age or urbanization mean that the nation's breweries are competing for a shrinking market where supply, is, there's, there's so much supply and, very, and decreasing demand. And in order to, now you must remember also that breweries don't sell directly to the public. Breweries, by and large, will sell to a distributor, and a distributor has a limited budget and they have limited storage space, and they also are experiencing a shrinking market. So they need to buy sake that is going to sell consistently. So in order for breweries to create differentiation, to create appeal, so that their sake will be bought and effectively distributed, you know, we are seeing breweries looking at the market, seeing what is working. What the, what the market is enjoying and they are, you know, creating, you know, diversifying their lineup, trying new styles or moving in new directions, mostly the small breweries, as Chris mentioned before, um, to try and um, capture some of the market share. And so really what we're seeing, this innovation or, you know, people trying new things is really that the market is, is shrinking and breweries are trying to find any way of expanding their customer base. You know, so what I feel as though we're seeing is I feel like this is uh, almost like an adolescent phase where as we're moving from a shrinking market into hopefully a plateauing market and then ultimately um, an expanding market, we're going to see a lot of trial and error from breweries as they try to work out what best suits the market in a modern age. Absolutely. And, I, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, to be honest, most Japanese people don't understand sake. I mean, period. I mean, that I mean, that's why they're trying to come up with it's in a lot of ways, it's not super different from the international market. Obviously, there's, you know, associations with certain terms and, you know, there's preconceptions and there's a 
a base level of some sort of understanding. But the reality is a lot of people just don't have a real solid understanding as to what sake is and how to differentiate different things on the shelf or what something different. So they're trying to make something that will communicate something to the person that will hopefully buy a bottle or order a and glass. Just to go back to my point about distributors, distributors have a lot of influence in the sake market. Distributors will be feeding back to brewers what they say the, their market wants. So distributors will be advising, encouraging breweries to perhaps try certain new styles. Um, so that's also something that needs to, I, I think, you know, be made clear that this isn't just from the brewery, like, you know, coming up with an, an idea and throwing it into the market. There is other dialogue going on behind the scenes. I think what's important is that, you know, I, this doesn't really work without education. So education is really important. If you're going to introduce new styles of sake into the market, you have to make sure that there are people there who can properly introduce them to the consumer, introduce their values, you know, the added value that that sake provides. That's that's a gap that we're, we're trying to fill still. It's not quite, we've not quite um, created that essential link yet. We're, we're, we're working on that. But I think the increase in education and the improvement in education, the quality of education over the last decade has also um, been fueling this innovation. And I think, you know, innovation has always been there as we discussed earlier. And I think to some extent, breweries have always innovated, but maybe not felt confident sharing that innovation with the consumer because they didn't really think they would appreciate it or or understand it or maybe just develop mis misconceptions and um like distorted um perspectives about about their sake yeah i do agree i think that i mean this is something that we talk to brewers that, well in, in my job we talk to brewers about a lot about communicating their, their aims and communicating their objectives to the end consumer um and being in charge of that voice you know, being in charge of that communication. So, you know, explaining why a particular sake has been created is quite important. Otherwise, it just seems like creating a sake for the purpose of creating a sake. So if there is a if there is a purpose, if there is an objective, and if there is a benefit to the end consumer, that kind those points do need to be um, clearly um, you know disseminated out into the market as well as the sake. I like it. Cindy, you've been all over the country for the last year or so, you've been on the move nonstop. So you've been encountering sake in many, many places. How's, what's, what's, what's been your experience? What are you feeling these days? Yeah, and I think it's more, and that's also questions for you and the other hosts, right? Do you think it's also a bit part of perception? Because I don't feel the traditional sake has disappeared. I just think we're, we're all screaming out for the new thing and the crazy sake and the crazy tasting like that's what we want to hear about right so everybody's talking about the exceptional weird stuff so the traditional sake is still kind of there it's just not really being covered that's kind of what I feel I absolutely agree I think it's it's like anything it's clickbait you know <laughs> you know people are not going to talk about 99.9% .9 of the sake that's on the market um they're going to talk about the 0.1% that has got a new edge or a new story or a compelling label or, um, you know, something that is, that could go viral. You know, that's the nature of the way we communicate these days. 
yeah, for better for better or for worse. So, but but yeah. but again, I mean, the traditional stuff doesn't really need that promotion, does it? There's, I mean, it might do, but I mean, it, it tends to be the sort of sake that's produced by the bigger breweries, and you know, they're just sticking to what they've been doing for the last hundred years. Do they really need to promote yeah. it? I don't, mm, I don't know about that. I mm. I would say I would say Long, the, for, longevity. Yeah. 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 I'd, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I would say yeah. The tr- again, it depends on where you define traditional, right? Some depending on your experience, or something from twenty years ago will be traditional to somebody. Something from fifty years to go, you know, say pre-war will be traditional to somebody else. Something, you know, a hundred years ago will be traditional to somebody else. It's sort of where do you draw that line for yourself? Um, and I guess I don't know for sake matters. You you say you let you're into the traditional stuff. I would say that you know, right? If we can just get a overall just stable healthy industry then we there will be plenty of room for whatever interpretation of traditional you have there will be room for it to thrive and exist and be appreciated and i think just right now even whatever the new fancy stuff even that stuff a lot of it isn't necessarily appreciated it's there it's like here's something else here's something else there's a whole lot of stuff floating in the pool but not a lot of stuff is really taken hold you know, um, what are people going to latch on to over time? And so it's, you know, if we can create a healthy industry, then hopefully there's room for everybody to, 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 you know, we, we can all be friends. Tradition. What is it? Tradition fuels innovation or is it the other way around? That's, that's the conundrum, isn't it? Well, the other thing is that, I mean, if you talk about handmade circuit, it's not really all handmade, is it? No, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we can the most old school brewery. There are lots of machines totally. involved. <laughs> I said we can. I said we can. I, I, I wanted. I'm going to avoid going down that rabbit hole today. You know, because you know you're talking about tradition. Yeah, there's lots more people making kimoto or whatever. But the kimoto or the boldai moto or whatever they're making today, I can guarantee you, the 99 percent of the places they're doing it, the principles are the same, but they're doing it very differently than they were doing it 300 years ago or 500 years ago. So it's you know, there's, you know, maybe we should weird. have an old school news. I actually did a, I did a seminar on that old school, new school sake because mm. I don't like to use the word traditional because what yeah. is it? So yeah. I just talked about sake that's made with the spirit of the old school versus yeah. sake that's made with the spirit of the new school and sort of talking about the similarities and differences. Maybe that would be. We, could, we can have that, an online battle. We can go back yeah. and forth and everybody can bring something <laughs> and we can, that could, I like it. I like it. I the like WWF it. of, of sake debate. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Done. All right. I knew we would spend too much time on that question. To the next. Saki Matters, thank you much for sending that in. I appreciate it. For thanks for fueling our our, our passion and our um our our, our feelings about um, this beverage we love so much. Uh, next question comes from American Sake Brewer. What is your favorite? And actually, I'm gonna lump this together with another question that I got as well. I'm gonna put a few of these together. American Sake Brewer asks, what is your favorite food to pair with sake? does sake only go with Japanese food? Um, together with that, we also had a question from, I don't know how to pronounce this or read this. I'm not Adrixia. I apologize if I'm butchering that. Um, it says, how about pairing sake with, South Asia, uh, with Southeast Asian cuisine or things that are usually more fatty, oily, spicy, etc." cetera? Um, a couple of caveats or a couple of things I'm gonna throw at you before we dig into this. First, if you're curious about pairing food with sake, episode 17 of Sake on Air, the sake and food relationship from the Sake Future Summit. Go ahead and look up positioning sake at the top. It's a whole 
episode about integrating sake into high-end um, restaurants uh, in France and the French cuisine, sake in Spain that we did looking about spreading um, sake in Spain uh, throughout Spain and the food culture there, the sake and food relationship, which was a session together with chefs from uh, Kamonegi uh, in Seattle, Teeter House in Arizona, Shibumi in LA, also sake over wine, looking at it in compared to, uh, comparison between sake and wine in relationship to Taiwanese cuisine. So this is a topic that we have covered in a number of capacities and uh, multiple facets over the last uh, couple of years. So I encourage our listeners to go back and check those out. Um, short answer, does uh, sake only pair with Japanese food? No. No. <laughs> no. no. And, and I think that it, you know, knowing that being American sake brewer, I have, I have a feeling that American sake brewer also um, just wants to, I probably wants to reiterate that point. It's a trolling us. Guess. I think, yeah, I think he's kind he's of trolling. trolling us, but he's I think, it, but I also think, but I also think it's important. I'm also really glad that he sent this in too, was that I think it's basically him saying also, pro I, I think American sake brewer, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but subtly saying, you know, touch on a few of the basic questions that a lot of people are still you know, still ask or that everybody's inputting into their search engine, you know? Um, and so, and I, which means that obviously that's something that needs to be addressed and still needs to be talked about. And so we should definitely spend some time um, looking at that. So um, only Japanese food, no. Um, regardless the other question about Southeast Asian cuisine, it talks about fatty, oily, spicy foods. Um, I'm not going to, we won't tackle that based on Southeast Asian cuisine in general, because there's so much to delicious food down there. Um, that Which just is not necessarily under that super, yeah, description. Exactly. Um, and so we'll just tackle, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of just very, very briefly, what is your favorite uh, food to pair sake with? Um, we've already taking care of um, the sake only go with Japanese food. And then we can talk a little about, say like spicy, hot, fatty, oily cuisines. Uh, again, each of those are elements in and of themselves, but I think it gives people a picture. I think if you say those things, people can envision the type of food that you're, um, that you're thinking about or talking about. Well, I can talk about my recent travels. So, I mean, clearly I haven't traveled very far in the last <laughs> um, 18 months, but um, okay. So for example, when I was in Spain, I, I understood why um, the distributor in Spain that I was traveling with uh, was really into Morocco Namagenshu sake. And it was because it had oxidized and it had, it had, you know, they had that kind of what we call namahine or a slightly stale um, aroma that you get from that particular style of sake when it's um, stored above a you know, certain temperature for a while because that oxidized aroma and that um, very umami rich flavor worked so well with um, Ibedical ham and the um, those kinds of um, what we call in Japan nama ham um, cured cured meats it worked incredibly well with um, with that food I was I was blown away I I was like, it was almost like a, a penny drop moment. Like, oh, now I understand why sales of this kind of sake are so so good here because it 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 seems to have. It's clearly it's not like um, Spanish wine. It's clearly not like like sherry, but it it almost it 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 has there is a, a an invisible thread that of um, aroma and flavor that can, can connects with the local food. 
also in uh, traveling through China, which my goodness me, we can't talk about Chinese cuisine because it's it's a world of cuisines. Um, every every um, every province um, has its own unique and rich um, culinary heritage. So when I was in, for example, in Shanghai, um, I they don't. It's not super spicy, but it's quite a rich flavor profile. And I found that um, a, an aromatic, um, what we'd call hojun style, like a, a mellow, rich style that had um, bright, um, fruity aromatics, um, worked really, really well because you don't want to pair anything too heavy, I feel, with um, sake that's got, with food that's got a very rich, complex flavor. Sometimes meeting the umaminess, but then uplifting it with some of those fruity um, notes worked really well. And then conversely, um, down in, in Hong Kong, where they have a much lighter style of cuisine, um, light-bodied, fruity styles tended to work well. The locals tend to like a crisper flavor profile. Hopping over to South Korea, like I mean, the spiciness of of um, kimchi works so well with the Nigori style sake. Um, that was a great pairing for me. I mean, so I mean, it's wherever you travel, it's it's you need the food to inform you what works with the pairing. You can't sort of go on with a, this is what's going to work more than anything you've actually got to sort of go and try the food and then play off it with the sake and and discover whether a, a complementary pairing or a contrasting pairing is what suits you with that cuisine i like it i like it i like it yeah i'm simple answer sake it goes with what you're eating like that's i mean that's honestly i i i love i love going out to visit restaurants or places that have wonderful proposals for me so that I don't have to think about it. It's a wonderful experience, but I generally have a, a reasonably, if not some cases, better experience, not thinking about it a whole lot and just picking whatever it is I feel like drinking and slamming it on the table and, and, and going at it. That tends to be the, the best pairing of all mm. in I, you know nine times nine times out of ten for I should preference that those experiences were my personal experience totally and that's that's my point is that that was my personal experience and what is a great sake pairing for you is based on what is delicious for you so I mean we there are some guidelines of what pairs well but ultimately it comes down to what you like and enjoy and I really don't think that there's a right or wrong in this totally 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 I agree with that, but I think a lot of people will look for some kind of guidance here because they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to end up with an experience where the sake clashes with the food or the food clashes with the sake. I've had that happen. It can happen. Um, I don't put that down to lack of experience. Sometimes you just get unlucky with what you've you've chosen. I completely agree that it comes down to personal preference, 100%, especially with spice, because you know when you pair sake with spice, sometimes it can enhance the the alcohol burn a little bit. And I think it comes down to personal preference, whether you like that, whether you don't like that. Um, but I, I will say that I'm having more positive experiences with spice myself now, because I understand a bit more about how the interaction works. So I think a lot of it is discovery, experimentation. You've got to go in there a little bit and be prepared to sort of 
have a few maybe not so good experiences or good experiences, and maybe they'll all be good experiences, you know, um, but not to go in there being afraid, uh, certainly not to go in there being afraid. And I would say that my short answer to it is, uh, no, it doesn't, you just pair with Japanese cuisine, it, you know, I mean, the world is your oyster, you can, oh, oysters are good with sake as well, aren't they? So you can just try anything really and and have fun with it. And I, I would say that the when you, you know, there are some pairings that maybe aren't the ultimate pairing combination, but I don't think it's as offensive as when you get a really bad wine and food. Oh, no, 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 no. Because you don't have this, you don't have those, like, you don't have those kind of elements in there, like bitterness or tannins to worry about. And umami is the key that unlocks all the pairings, in my opinion, like you, with spice as well. If you pick a sake, which has a good level of umami or amino acid in there, which you can taste, you know, it, it just tastes very tarty, meaty, you know, a little bit salty, sweet on the end. Um, I think that covers any of the negative elements that come out in the pairing of spice. And that's where I'm finding that I go, I go right rather than go wrong. Um, and my favorite food for pairing with sake right now, and this will surprise you, nearly all my sake pairings, I just get a plate of olives and I pair olives with sake. I'm finding that goes really well. And I, I and it's surprising me because it's not something I would have thought would have worked quite well with sake. Well, I think that one of the great ways that you can learn um, about pairings is going to a, a um going to a, um, a, a bottle store and picking up some bottles of sake and just sitting down with, you know, having a, a couple, like maybe three in your refrigerator of the smaller bottles, not the big bottles, and just keeping them in, in your refrigerator and over the space of a week or so with the food that you're cooking at night, um, you know, trying the sake in your refrigerator and seeing what, what works. I mean, I think because that's how we learn to pair wine with food, right? And just sheer exposure, right? Like just with anything, whether it's wine or anything, just repeated exposure to, you know, whether you know, uh, flavors, aromas, whatever, just coming up with some sort of, it doesn't even have to be a routine, but like Rebecca, like you said, something that is easy for you to do at home that is, you know, low energy, you know, low effort, you know, minimal cost that you can just keep dipping into, that you can just keep getting more exposure for yourself, you know, and just the process of doing that. If you were to do that consistently for a month or three months, if you're really curious about sake or different kinds of sake, I'm pretty sure that a month or a couple months down the road, you would not only start to really discover what foods you like, but you would also start to discover more about the types of sake that you like as well. And in probably the type, the types of sake that you thought you liked, you'll start to discover you like other types of sake. It just, experience and exposure it works you know the same as everything else you know so next question next question comes from Django Unchained Django's always uh paying attention to what we're doing uh here at the show so um Django thank you um Django asks or requests talk more about using flour yeast please question I'm gonna, I'll throw this to, to everybody I'm, I'm just really curious how often do you really see flour yeast sake, hear about it, drink it? Like what's, what, to what degree does it take up mind share for you or is it present? Rebecca's got a hand yeah, up. Yeah, actually when I read this question, it, it made me ask a question. Well, we often, I often, more than, more than not, I hear about flour yeast from an international audience than I hear domestically. 
So I was curious to why that was. But to answer your question, Justin, um, yes, last week I tried a new label that is made with an olive yeast. <laughs> I was going to mention that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that was interesting. But I think this this goes back to what we were talking about earlier on is that breweries are looking for ways to diversify. And one make uh, Yamanashi brewery that I know that only brews with um, flour yeast, um, they, they told me at the time, I don't want to name them because I don't have approval to talk about this in detail, but at the time they, I said, well, why did you decide to just use flour yeast? And the answer was, well, you know, other breweries were making Yamahais and other breweries were doing this and that, and we we're trying to think of a way to stand out. So we decided to use this particular flour yeast as something that was unique to our brewery. And so, there, I mean, there are lots of reasons why breweries are using flour yeasts, but part of it could also be that, you know, um, flour yeasts create conversation. It creates um, diversity in the lineup. And it's when you tell some, what is this sake? It's the flour sake. It's made from flour. I mean, it's not made from flour, but it's, you know, there's this very. It's a very visual. It's very thing, visual. It? Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's something that's, and, and it's pleasant, right? You very rarely will you say flowers and somebody will go gross, right? I mean, it's something that anybody can pretty much go, oh, that's, that sounds pleasant. So Justin, you know? what is a flower yeast? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to jump in and, and uh, give a little explanation about what that is, because I did, I did look it up. Um, do it, do it up. So in Japanese, it's called a hana kobo, kobo being Japanese for yeast, hana being Japanese for flour. And uh, now I'm not sure whether a brewery is allowed to use a flour yeast, regardless of whether they purchase it from um, the the uh, Hana Kobo King Kukai, which is a uh, research um, company institute at Tokyo University of Agriculture, but I most of the breweries that I've come across, well, all the breweries that I've come across that use Hana Kobo get their flour yeast from this uh, Hana Kobo King Kukai. Um, I think there are about sixteen to twenty different types, different flowers that you can get at the moment. And he's uh, he's researching new ones all the time. Um, I often bump into his King Kukai at sake events in uh, in Tokyo when they do them in Tokyo. Uh, very nice guy um, and has these lovely students that help him out. Um, so yeah, that's that's what a Hanakobo is. And they basically they extract the yeast from the flowers and then they kind of they do various different uh, isolation techniques to extract a yeast that can be used in brewing because not all the yeast on the flower is suitable for brewing it takes would, a lot of I would, research i would say that i mean I, don't, I i need to double check this but i'd say that you're right chris about most would be getting it from the kyokai because for production purposes they would want a very very stable yeast because if you if you you know create a, a flower yeast in your own backyard might not might not be stable it might not be able to um do um, be sustainable through the entire production process so I would say that for um, production reasons, they would be um, getting stable um, variants 
from a kyokai, from an organization. But yeah, I think yeah. that we've probably got some more expert input on this from Imada-san, who is also sneakily in the background. Yeah, I should have introduced him at the top of the show. I wasn't sure if he was going to chime in with us. So he's been, he's, been, he's been hiding out, but I'm very happy that Mr. Shuso Umada is actually in the house this evening as well, too, so to, to drop some knowledge on us. Yeah, I, I would like to um, explain a little bit about the history of the, the Flower East. It was separated in 1998 by the, the professor called Hisayoshi Nakata of the, the Tokyo University of Agriculture, as Chris mentioned. And that was a time when very fruity uh, style ginjo sake was very popular. And many new East was uh, developed by the regional laboratories such as AK-1 from Akita in 1990, or the Alps East from Nagano in 1992. And I had a chance to talk with uh, that Professor Nakata at that time. And what he mentioned, what he described about the Flower East at that time was that it is a special East which uh, you can make a very, very fruity aromatic sake, even with a very uh, high polishing rate. So you, you don't need to make it a ginjo uh, method. You, you, can, you can make a very fruity sake with a, a futsushu method. I mean, you know, you, you, can, you can even have a futsushu which has a very fruity aroma. That's what's the magic of the flower yeast. That's what Nagata-san said. And the first, uh, the first eat he uh, uh, separated was they called ND1, ND1, which is uh, separated from Nadeshko flower. Nadeshko, I, I don't know the English translation of Nadeshko, but it's Nadeshko in Japanese. And it was very, 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 very aromatic, very surprisingly aromatic. But as um, um, Rebecca mentioned, it, it's not as uh, stable as the as other, you know, uh, famous Kyokai Kobo and uh, Kyokai East. It's, it's, uh, so, so the character of the, the NV1 changed a little bit as the time passes. So it doesn't create as much aroma as they did before. Yeah. That's... Well, actually, actually, to answer your question, Nareshiko um, is a flower that is indigenous to uh, Japan. Um, for, for our listeners, I would describe it, it looks like a very small feathery carnation. Um, I'm not sure what family it is related to. It is actually, it's, it's related to the carnation family, but it's a very, very small, delicate um, flower. Thanks, Google. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I get, yeah, Imara-san, thank you so much for, for chiming in on that. And I guess, you know, and, you know, since then, I think since, they figure that out, you've got, oh, we have regional flowers that are, you know, native to different areas or different regions. So you have, you know, regional research centers coming up with trying to come up with different strains and things. And so I guess flowers, because there's a lot of them, they get a fair bit more attention maybe, but like you said, Rebecca, there's the olive strains, like you said, the regional, the regional research centers are always looking to develop some sort of unique strain, whether it's something they're you know, developing or trying to find or discover. And at the end of the day, a lot of these, right, they're not made for brewing. So I imagine a lot of cases, 
you know, they have to be combined with other yeasts or other other things to actually get a good fermentation. And yeah, because so, in the olive, I'm not sure what you're tasting notes for, Justin, but I was getting a lot of banana off the olive. <laughs> so, so I think that there must have been some other kind. I, I feel as though it was a blend. I don't know, but yeah. there was a well, lot of 1% banana. 1% olive, 99% uh, <laughs> yeast number nine well, or something like that. I mean, number seven is, is very, very stable yeast. So I'm yeah. sh- that's yeah. what it seemed like to me. But I, now I'm just, um, now I'm just, I'm, I'm just getting but but I think from the length of the conversation that we're having about this it is an incredibly interesting topic um it is also an incredibly incredibly small part of the market yeah for sure for sure and so what it also means is we should also do an episode looking at yeast someday it'll be it'll be a bit of a a bit of a geeky episode but that's okay we can do a few one one or two of those every now and then so uh Django Unchained we will do more on yeast again, another day on multiple occasions. So yeah, thanks for sending your question. Um, to our next question from Christophorosius. Christophorosius. This person asks, what's up with Next5 and similar? As long as we're talking about collaborations. Rebecca, what's up with Next5? Well, we, can, I, we can talk about similar in a minute. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I feel as though I can pick up pick up the torch on this you, one. You can give um, us you can give us the the gist. <laughs> all right, faith. so full transparency, I do work with with the with the next five boys a lot. So, um, just to answer the question, uh, the next five uh, started in twenty ten. It's a collective of five, and I use ear quotes to say young, um, Akita breweries. They are Adam. The the labels are Adamasa. Uh, Harukasumi, Ipakususe, Yamamoto slash Shirataki, and Yukinobijin. And I use ear quotes because four of the members were in their mid-30s when it started. One was not, um, but I'll get to that later. So they started working together to develop and improve their brewing skills, as well as expand awareness of Akita sake, sake brewing, and natural resources. Now, at the time, I've got to give you some background on this. At the time, four of the members um, were returning or taking over at their family's breweries. And they were coming into breweries that were that had dwindling sales and in some cases on the verge of bankruptcy and were in dire need of improvement or, you know, there would be some kind of change at the brewery in order for them to survive, you know, in the, in the modern era. And these five breweries were all you know friends and as four of the members had very little experience they looked to Kobayashi-san from Yukinobijin for guidance in terms of how to brew um, you know advice on um, uh, how to maybe um, develop new techniques how to use Akita um, natural resources more in their sake brewing for example local rice strains etc so rice behaves differently when brewing so when they started to use different rice strains of course they had a lot of questions about how to um, best brew with these particular strains so the four of them together um, became a collective of sharing information sharing knowledge um, learning, developing, and also trying to, when possible, to use more um, Akita sake rice. So the actually Next5 was, was actually inspired by um, Hiroshima, 
Um, this, so Akita's um, next five group was inspired by, um, it wasn't a collective, but they knew that Hiroshima brewers in a particular area um, kind of had a maybe a support group that they can, they uh, kind of critiqued each other's sake brewing in order for the entire um, Hiroshima sake brewing community to move forward. But usually sake breweries don't share information. They don't share knowledge. They don't share um, techniques together. I mean, of course, almost all breweries um, are part of a prefectural brewers association, but individual breweries working together and combining forces um, was not something that was done. So with the Next Five um, group, in 2010, they collaborated with a limited edition sake, which they called the New Beginning. And each brewery took charge of a different aspect of the sake production phase. So um, one brewery uh, provided the Akita sake rice, they did the steaming, one did the shubo, one did the koji, one did the, provided the water, one um, took charge of the main um, tank fermentation. And they launched and promoted it together rather than under their brewery name, under this collective name, which was Next Five. Now, this was kind of a pioneering step. No one had really done this kind of marketing um, or created this kind of sake before. So it really got the nation's attention. And at the same time, um, in 2011, the brewer of Adamasa was getting a lot of national attention um, for returning to his family brewery, um, taking charge of it, and... Uh, doing something quite revolutionary, which was cutting production by two-thirds and going back to Junmai-only production rather than Futsushu production and only brewing uh, rice, uh, brewing sake from local, locally grown rice. That was, that was a huge, huge news in the sake industry and there was a lot of attention and he's very articulate because he was a journalist so he was able to talk to the you know the domestic media and get the story of what he was doing at Adamasa as well as Next Five was doing because these days Akita is very well known sake producing area back in 2010 it was not and that really is a lot of it is to do with the efforts of Next Five to create attention um, for the prefectures uh, brewing and the prefectures natural resources. So every year they work together to create a limited edition sake. In the first five years, it was just passing the baton and they had a different theme that they brewed the sake under. The next five years, um, they extended the collaboration out to other people outside of Akita and in the world. And so they started, they did a collaboration with the DJ Richie Horton. Um, they did a collaboration with uh, Takashi Murakami, the pop artist. And there have been other collaborations with the Manga Collective, with, um, and recently there was one with uh, Pierre Hume. I'm going to I'm going to munch that name, but it was a collaboration with a with a famous French um, patissier. So they really do. Uh, it really was fundamentally based on knowledge sharing and knowledge building, but it then morphed into something that was more about a platform for Akita sake brewing. And it went on to actually influence the development of other prefectural um, collectors, which I'm sure um, the rest of the group have got more insight than I do. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was 
a pivotal movement in getting other breweries just on board with the idea of, uh, of outward facing collaboration, right? Even if there were internal discussions amongst small groups of breweries and information sharing, it wasn't, it, how that that would then lead to something that could be delivered to the consumer in a way that would generate awareness and generate those things. It just, it was almost, it pretty much was unheard of as far as I can, as far as I can think of, right? And so now it just basically the idea of collaboration for people who are probably into beer, craft beer and things like that, that probably it just sounds like a, a cool collab or something like that. You know, it's something that say the black, you know, the craft beer industry has been doing for a long time. And the definition of what that collaboration can be can be something as simple as, you know, slapping one person's name on it and one person brewing it and everybody wins to something that's a really, really deep, rich investment of skills and knowledge building and things, right? And that was just, and Next Five was just, it was a very rich, right? Um, it, was, it was a very rich collaboration. Yeah, and um, I think it's, it was, of course, it was, uh, there was a lot of marketing involved yeah. in it, but also it was, I think that sake brewing, in sake brewing, there was always a sense of like internal competition with a shrinking market. Everyone was sort of fighting for market share, but actually rather than fighting this battle separately, it is much more, um, it's much better to combine talents so that everyone can be, well, not for collective um, success um, and long-term gains. And ultimately the end consumers benefited from it. Yeah, absolutely. And so and then, yeah, after that, I'd say probably the other one that got a lot of attention was the Date 7. Which right? sadly the finished seven, this year. Which was this year was the last, yeah. right? This year was the last iteration of that um, being seven producers from Miyagi Prefecture. And no, if you just read it, it looks like Date 7. So everybody always just calls it Date 7. It's it's Date because it has to do with the region and reg old regional naming up there. You can be that asshole at the party who's like, it's Date. It's actually pronounced date. Um, you can be that um, that that person, but it's yeah. Just so you know, it's uh, it's it's date seven. There's uh, there's Yamagata as well. Yeah. Yamagata, yeah, the Yamakawa Mitsuo, which is adorable. Hilarious. I love it. I love it. I love it. If you yeah, look, you should look this up. It's great. Yamakawa Mitsuo. Yeah, the labels are fantastic. They're great. They're great. And it's uh, what? It's, to it's Toko. It's Yamagata Masamune. It's um, uh, who is it? Uh, Otokoyama and uh, the other one. Uh, Jokigen? No. Um, uh, Chris, Chris would be mad if we did it. There's one that Chris is it. Tate no Kawa. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> there you go. Good timing. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's the four that, and if you, and basically each one takes on a different season. Each season is right. It's a different brew from these different breweries, but it's around this cohesive character that they developed, who's just full of character, and it's just it's just cool. They produce some cool, just art and videos, and just it's just lovely. And the stuff they bottle with every one of those is just really neat, and it's they've done a, a lovely job with it. It's been really fun to watch. And the sake is wasn't wasn't there one with about. Uh, 10 or 12 breweries in it. It was something like the, the new generation or something oh, like that. And it was all there, about... There were a lot of collectives that oh, that blossomed after yeah. five. Like there was a Mie collective. 
um they were you know they were, they were popping up all over the place the, the gym they, collective as well yeah, that's a yeah. that's a big one isn't it they they popped up but they were they didn't they weren't sustained they weren't sustained yeah. You have this one uh, at the moment. What's it called? The no, the no. Uh, oh God, what is it? Um, no, no to ieru sakagura. That's the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's too clever for my memory it's, to remember it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 like a pun in Japanese, so it's hard to explain. But it's basically a, a collection of about a dozen. I'd have to look again. Uh, yeah, breweries that are focusing where their own where their individual efforts as a brewery in rice cultivation are that they're putting a lot of time and energy into them. i think so, i think it's self-sustainability through rice cultivation is the is the key objective if i remember correctly well it's um yeah this one's like oh, there's one i'm out in chiba there's one in chiba nobody knows about it akutiba ever ever heard of it anyone akutiba no, no. Uh, they're trying to take the word active in chiba and put it together akutiba yeah anyway but it's it's well, a, it's a I'd, handful I'd like... it's a handful of brewers that use you know they they pick a rice farm that they work with every year and they do um um their own iterations um on that seasonally they did other ones where they've shared um production styles and other breweries have done different stuff so they're doing some neat stuff just nobody knows about it so <laughs> i'd also like to do a shout out for the ladies there's also angel four um ah. which is a collective of four female Kurumototoji um, from four different uh, prefectures. Uh, one is Musubi Yui, one is uh, Asahi Sakae, one is Machida Shuzo, and the final one is Gembu. And these women uh, create a, a, a sake together each year um, and market it under the Angel 4 um, brand. So if so get out there and try it. Support, support, the, support the sake sisters. Right. Said. so yeah collaboration is happening finally yay you know in sake and so yeah there's all kinds of great collaborations happening just like with a lot of other collabs some are more collaborative than others you know and I have a feeling you know probably now is everybody's you know as we were talking about innovation earlier or whatever whatever you want to call that everybody's trying you know throwing stuff at the wall and trying to see what sticks and everybody, but everybody has figured out that working together is actually a good thing. So um, we'll be, we'll be seeing more of that. I have a feeling whether it's an individual labels or probably, you know, you're starting to see more places or more collaborations looking at not just an individual brand, but working together to produce going from a product to like a service and trying to set up some sort of a service or platform where it's a collective of brewers that are providing, you know, a specific product through a specific sales channel or doing certain seasonal releases and things. And so it's, we'll be seeing a lot more. Everybody's trying to figure out how to sell sake and well, making good sake and helping one another out. So more to come in that arena. You know what I'm going to do at this point in time? We've still got a whole bunch of questions and they're all questions that I would really, really like to talk about. So as opposed to just like burning through these and either one, not doing them justice or us staying up really late and getting burnt out on this, let's, let's call it a show. I think this is a good, I think this is a good collection of info that we got. We've got a good runtime. Um, I think this will make everyone's life better in a lot of ways by just calling it good now. Um, to all of our listeners who wrote in, thank you. Do that again. <laughs> Keep doing it. Uh, as I mentioned, we still have more questions to get through. 
which means that we will be recording another one of these. Um, and all of the other questions that I'm still looking at on my list are all entirely different uh, from the stuff we just went over. So there is a whole plethora of things to delve into. Keep sending questions and we will keep adding them to the list and hopefully in the near future, we'll do this again. I actually, I really enjoyed this. This is a nice change of pace. It's a good way to kind of mix things up and it tells us a lot about a lot about what you are interested in. And that's what's important at the end of the day. So, And I think it's important for our listeners to remember there is no right or wrong question. Um, yeah. Ask the simplest or the most complex that you want. We're a resource here for you. Um, so bring it on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Cindy, how you doing? What are you thinking about today's today's jabber because you've been I mean you've been fielding all these questions you've been interacting with everybody so I I for better or for worse I hardly even look at Instagram and stuff anymore because I can't keep up and there's I there's questions coming in and there's things going on what was any takeaways from you know just saying throwing this out into the world saying hey we want your questions what was your or you can just you know any other feelings? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think there's a lot of people and they, as you already pointed out, they come from different levels, right? There's people who just discovered sake and they they find us and they're like, oh, wow, there's someone that tells me stuff and shares their knowledge. And there's people who, yeah, they probably even have brewery experience or they've been to Japan multiple times or they maybe be in Japan, right? So I think it's interesting to have people from kind of all walks of life having this white um sense of questions so I think today it's only really scratching the surface um they keep coming in and I hope they come more right I mean we have our our channels and we have like a little highlight button on Instagram where people can just filter in whatever they want anytime they don't have to wait for us to to give these shouts outs I mean we're always here and we're always happy to to answer whether it's directly or whether it is through a show like this so yeah, I think the more we get, the more we can help the industry and help people understand what sake really is, because it is so mystifying and it's still puzzling people, whether you are new to it or advanced. It's just there's so much to learn and there is so much new stuff coming out. So, yeah, please, please, please send in all your questions. We're really happy to help. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Chris, Rebecca, Cindy, Imara san Thank you. It was it was a it was an honor and a, and right? a pleasure. We say we were hoping to do this in person today, but we we made it happen, and it was and it was enjoyable and a lot of fun. It was yeah. a lot of fun. I, I'm I'm excited to do this again. So, to all of our listeners, thank you again so much for tuning in to this episode of Sake on Air. Uh, if you got a moment, please do review us, rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform it is that you are enjoying the show on. And as I said, keep sending your questions. If there's another way that would be easy for you to interact with us here at the show, let us know. I mean, we're, I said, Cindy's doing a brilliant job. Um, like I said, a lot of our stuff came in through Instagram. We got a couple things, I think Facebook. Um, if there are other platforms, other means through which you would like to communicate with us or that we could better help you, let us know. Um, we are working on things. There are things brewing, no pun intended, um, that we hope to you know, share with uh, the world in, not, probably not until at least uh, the new year, but uh, there's some, you know, we're working on things. So let us know how best, how better we can uh, interact with you and support uh, and help with, uh, yeah, help you find joy in your sake journey. Um, 
Sake on Air is made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with editing and sound production by Mr. Frank Walter. Mm-hmm.